This is the Cater Daily Podcast for Friday, May 19th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Now that former FBI Director Robert Mueller will head an investigation into possible Russian meddling in U.S. elections, the range of what he could discover is quite high. Julian Sanchez, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, argues that the single-minded focus on potential secret, explicit collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government largely misses the point. You write in Just Security that you think this focus on uh, explicit, secret collusion, uh, allegedly, between the Trump campaign and the Russian government is probably overwrought. Yeah, the public debate about this, I think, has been dominated by this very narrow and binary question uh, of whether there was a knowing collusion or some sort of explicit uh, coordination specifically related to interference in the election and, and maybe even more narrowly than that on uh, the coordination of, of uh, the release of information from the hacked uh, democratic servers. Uh, and that seems to me like a mistake uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, I just think it's, it's unlikely that that is going to, uh, to be something that's proven with any kind of absolutely conclusive uh, rock-solid evidence. First, because it's generally a difficult thing to prove. Uh, even if uh, people are colluding, uh, that's something that if you don't have a kind of contemporaneous recording and nobody uh, happens to uh, to confess, um, it's difficult after the fact to, to conclusively prove what two people were discussing. Um, but I also think it's probably not something that, that, that occurred in, in the sense that people talk about. Um, if we look back at that campaign, uh, we see Russia pretty openly sort of rooting for and doing what they could to assist uh, Donald Trump. We could see Trump uh, obviously picking up on that and reciprocating, uh, you know, praising Russia, defending them from uh, from the consensus of the uh, of the intelligence community that they'd intervened, uh, but also picking up and quoting on the campaign trail articles from state media. Uh, we saw um, Trump uh, confidants like Roger Stone sort of openly boasting about uh, how they had uh, conversations with, uh, for example, the hacker Gujifer 2.0, who uh, the intelligence community believes is, is sort of a front for the Russian government. Uh, so we can see how uh, you know, there was assistance from Russia and how even maybe they were funneling through cutouts like Guccifer, uh information to the Trump campaign. Um, but it would have almost, I think, been redundant to have, in addition to that, some kind of secret back channel. Um, you have basically the oars the, the here all rowing in the same direction, coordinated interests based on publicly available information that, that would have been made it superfluous um, to take the risk, frankly, from, from the Russian side of looping the Trump campaign in. This is a, 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 you know, a notoriously sort of very impulsive individual and a, and a campaign and, and now an administration that are uh, leaking like, like sieves. Um, and so what, one of the things that I don't think has been asked is what, what exactly would have been the um, – the incentive for, for Russia to, to essentially read the campaign in to their interference operation. Most intelligence operations operate on a, a sort of strict need-to-know basis, and uh, I, I don't think the Trump campaign needed to know. Uh, all that said, um, right, there are daily reports of all sorts of uh, suspect relationships uh, and entanglements, so uh, covert Russian financing for uh, Trump-branded projects in Canada, uh, Mike Flynn's uh, many uh, conflicts, including 
his employment as an unregistered lobbyist for Turkey, uh, payments he accepted without disclosing them from Russian state media. Um, there are a lot of questions I think that, that deserve to be answered and looked into about the extent of Russian influence over the campaign, leverage over the campaign. When intelligence agencies recruit assets, it's not, uh, you know, as, as I suppose people may imagine, uh, you know, Boris Badenov walking up and saying, we would like to re recruit you to work for Russian intelligence. Um, right? There's a whole complex array of ways that they uh, recruit people and you, you may be, you know, an asset for an intelligence service without having any real idea of it. Uh, and I think the, the error then is to, to treat these investigations as though the only question worth answering that's going to come out of them is, was there knowing secret collusion, yes or no? And if the answer is no, then there's nothing to see here and we can move along. Um, there are a lot of questions we might want to answer uh, that have implications for national security um, that are not implicated in the answer to that question. And the other thing that you point out here is that even if there were some explicit uh, known back channel between the campaign and the Russian government, that would largely serve to give the Russian government leverage in, right. in, a, very, in a very sort of stupid, ham-handed way. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense from the perspective of either side. It would have been an enormous risk um, for Russia because it could be disclosed. The advantage to them primarily of coordinating would be the ability to hold the fact of their the campaign's complicity over the administration's head. But the administration would understand this too, that uh, there wasn't really a marginal benefit uh, of secret coordination on top of the public and explicit coordination that was happening. Uh, so uh, why would they want to give Russia any more leverage than they may already have? Um, it, it's hard to see what either side had to gain at the margin from uh, making uh, you know a bargain explicit. So uh, Robert Mueller, the former FBI director, has been tapped as special counsel uh, after Jeff Sessions recused himself. And um, so he has what seems to be, based on the language that uh, authorizes him to look into all this, a fairly wide berth to expand this investigation into all sorts of things. Yeah, and I think that's actually probably a good thing precisely because uh, I think there's a broad array of questions here that are worth answering uh, and that might easily get lost in the shuffle if we had a, someone appointed with a, a very narrow focus on some specific uh, legal question. Well, even, you know, even, even taking for granted, I mean, there are questions that may be worth a answering that don't even directly involve a question of a, you know, a criminal violation of, of, of statute. Um, there are, in intelligence investigations, very often uh, what you want to do is sort of understand uh, what an adversary is doing, and that may or may not involve violations of criminal law, um, but that, that's often not the primary point. Uh, you know, when intelligence surveillance is, is carried out, for instance, uh, it, clearly the, the idea in most cases is not that this eventually results in a criminal prosecution. Occasionally it does, but that's the tiny minority of uh, instances of electronic surveillance. The point is actually to generate evidence of some kind of, of, of criminal proceeding in court. Um, and so, you know, I, I think 
in a way, it may be useful to uh, to think of this more as uh, an intelligence or a counterintelligence investigation than as something uh, geared toward prosecution. But the breadth of the mandate um, does at least mean that we're not going to be falling into that trap of being so hyper-focused on one question that uh, we sort of look the other way if it turns out that the uh, you know, any violation that may have occurred is different from what uh, we anticipated going in. And there's a distinction to be drawn here between what, uh, if we're already at the point of asking questions like what did the president know and when did he know it, of uh, what would can be considered an impeachable offense and what would be considered uh, a criminal offense. Right. And those are, of course, largely unrelated. The constitutional phrase, uh, high crimes and misdemeanors, doesn't actually mean uh, you know, something that is a violation of criminal statute. Um, high crimes meant at the time roughly um, abuses of power, uh, abuses of office. Misdemeanors meant uh, misconduct. Uh, you know, when we look at the debate about, I think there's a similar sort of phenomenon happening in the debate about uh, uh, President Trump's conversations with uh, James Comey, uh, whether he had told him essentially to, to lay off uh, uh, Michael Flynn. Um, now, does that conversation, as reported from this alleged uh, memo by uh, former FBI Director James Comey, uh, in itself constitute evidence of uh, criminal obstruction of justice? No, it, certainly that that alone, I think, pretty clearly doesn't meet the elements of the that statutory offense. Um, is it nevertheless extremely inappropriate for a president to be having that kind of conversation with an FBI director? Yes. Um, and I think it's fundamentally a political decision, uh, not, not a, a matter of consulting statutes to ask whether that impropriety rises to the level of impeachability. Julian Sanchez is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.